trigger warning, this episode contains a discussion of sexual assault, abuse and domestic violence experienced by a disabled person. For me especially, there is the crashing waves and rippling through your body and this warmth and sensory, almost blackout of a huge, real kind of earth shaker. Yeah, we're recording. So, this is Amy's episode. You're going to come and sit on my lap. This is Amy's episode. And because we haven't had much time this weekend, without you being here, I thought we'd (laughs) record the intro with you. Yeah. So, Amy is an activist. She's a historian. She is a writer, an academic, and she's blind. And it is, I think, one of the best episodes we've ever done. (coughs) Yeah, you haven't heard it yet. That's why you're getting aggravated because you're like, let me hear the episode if it's that good. Amy talks to us about so many things. Ableism, sex without the lights on, fetish clubs, her fantastic guide dog who has her own TikTok account. Pregnancy. Pregnancy, actually, we don't talk too much about that. That is for Patreons. If you want to become a Patreon, please do. Where's the dog? Is there a dog out there? Or have you seen a fox? At the moment, dog is called Cuck. Are you sure? Are you sure you can see one? You can go and have a look if you like. Oh, yeah, the pregnancy stuff I've put on Patreon. If you want to become a Patreon, please go to www patreon.com forward slash Helen Duff. Duff with two Fs, like the beer in The Simpsons. If you want to make a one-off donation, you can do it there. You don't have to become a full-time Patreon. Or you can go to my <coughs> Ko-fi, which is ko-fi.com forward slash Helen Duff. Same name, same spelling. I'm sorry if you want these episodes to be released more regularly. I always intend to put them out once a week on a Tuesday. This is coming out on a Tuesday, all being well. I am doing some filming in Brighton, when it's released so hopefully that happens but because I've been doing more and more filming and more and more childcare at the same time and uh, we've just taken on a massive renovation project which was exciting to begin with and then very quickly became terrifying because we've already got ourselves into a serious legal situation where we're having to sue someone for stealing a load of money from us (laughs) sorry too much info but that explains why I'm struggling to put them out every week so I'm aiming for bi-weekly now I think that is a more, what would you say, Ash? A kinder release schedule for me. And I hope that it's not too aggravating for you. You really want this hot content. I'm not being very good at putting it on socials either. So if you are listening, I love you. Thank you so much for being a dedicated core listener who just wants to hear it and found it. Uh, and if you want to share it with somebody for that reason, because you love it, then because it's changing as we go and you're embracing that I would really appreciate you passing it on or give it to me go have a look or you giving it a review on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast we have to go and investigate the dog that is also called Cac which sounds like cat you are wonderful Amy is fantastic I'm so excited for you to hear this episode are you wondering why I'm talking to the computer you've seen me do this before for sure 
This is what I do all the time for work. I <laughs> Yeah. I got to go. You've got to go. I got to go. You've seen a dog? It's bath time. Everyone, I'm sure, is absolutely delighted to hear your contributions. Thank you so much. Yeah, big round of applause for both of us. Yeah. Time for us to go. Okay, that's me. This is Amy. I'll link all of her stuff in the episode notes, as always. Okay, the booth is being shaken quite violently now. I've got to go before it all falls down on us. Yeah, here's Amy. <laughs> Hello, I am Dr. Amy Kavanagh. I am a blind activist, freelancer and content creator. And that last label is the least cringe way I can find to describe that I spend a lot of time on the internet sharing my life. Yeah. Um, I would also like to draw attention to the fact that all of those hats are worn by different people in different ways. And I feel like you are very active in all, like, you know, some people might occasionally tweet or write an article one time. I feel like you've gone in on each of those various hats. The reason we got put in touch, and this is, uh, I just wanted to say this straight off the bat because I didn't know of your work before this. A friend of mine who is an academic, Mm -hmm. she said, I think you should check out Amy. And I went onto your Twitter and she drew particular attention to a tweet that you had done announcing your pregnancy. Congratulations, by the way. And the responses that you'd had along the lines of which was, so you'd said, really delighted that uh, I'm able to announce I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. You probably hadn't said it in quite that official a manner as if you're the queen. Um... <laughs> I did a very cute video. <laughs> and then somebody had sub-tweeted or replied to it saying, mm, sorry, how are you pregnant? You're blind. Basically was like the, the gist of it. And then I feel like it wasn't just one person. And then subsequently you've drawn my attention to other tweets you've had recently, which are along the same lines of sort of effectively suggesting blind people either can't have sex or shouldn't have sex both of which i'm shocked and appalled by but also sadly depressed to think that's still happening that's still going on so talk me through your relationship with internet trolls talk me through uh <laughs> talk me through how you cope with that come on in a on a light basis. topic eh? yeah <laughs> so internet trolls Oh, it's been a learning curve. I'll Mm. say that much because I started on Twitter. I had my, I was told I had my Twitterversary the other day, 11 years. And I started on Twitter as an academic because it was quite a good place to network and, Mm. you know, find out about opportunities and stuff. And I had a few, you know, light Twitter interactions as as like a small account. Um, I got into like a couple of little uh kind of tete-a-tetes with people around <laughs> mental health and feminism in academia and that kind of stuff but my profile grew because I started talking and sharing very openly about my journey accepting my visual impairment and specifically my experience and documenting my experience of using a white cane for the first time as an adult and doing that going in and out of central London every day which was a wild ride and so because I was very open about those experiences a lot of people found it interesting or related to it and I started campaigning 
So it's really been the last, I would say, five or six years that I felt I've had more of a, a platform. And the bigger the platform, the more trolls. Um, I had to get to a point where I made a decision about it, right? You have to, I mean, this is what I advise other advocates because you have to decide how resilient you can be to those behaviors. And not everyone can, and that's fine. Like, not everyone can cope with death threats or rape threats or intimate questions about your personal life or your body. I constantly get accused of faking my blindness. That's probably the biggest trolling thing I experience. Wow. And that has included by other blind people, which is interesting. And that's what we call lateral ableism. So that's where there's kind of uh, discrimination from within your own community towards you. But like I'm going semi-viral at the moment overnight and I've just muted the whole thing because it's hugely overwhelming especially when you're using assistive technology as well you just can't keep on track of it and my biggest advice is just turn it off and walk away Mm -hmm. because people troll for fun it is a hobby Mm -hmm. it is something that they get weird kicks out of and there is really no point in engaging them as painful or as intrusive or as as vulnerable as it can make you feel they're doing it for for fun and if they get you to react they've achieved their goal and I'm also lucky to have quite a robust community who will go and have those arguments on my behalf now which is nice but I do also tell them like that's a troll leave it there's no point I think (laughs) that's a troll I love that yeah I think it's really important to dehumanize the troll in the same way that they not even attempting to dehumanize you I think they've come to you tweeting at you as if you are not a human like from the get-go it's not an attempt to to dehumanize you actively it's like an assumption that you are not yeah, worth empathising with in any way. I would say the real revelation with trolling has actually been on TikTok, and that's where I've been quite disturbed by it. So the TikTok is very much my guide dog, Ava. And I found that the kind of short video format showing, you know, what the cute, clever dog can do was working really well for getting a lot of messages across. But I would say on every single video of Ava doing something, because the way Ava's videos are is I film her from above. So it's looking down at her, as she navigates, as she solves a problem, etc. And every single video, I would say between 50 and 70% of the comments are, if you're blind, how are you typing? If you're blind, how can you film? If you're blind, how can you use TikTok? You're faking, how can you reply to comments? And that gets draining and overwhelming and stressful because it's just the same question again and again and again and again and again. Well, I noticed in the comments or the replies rather to the tweet that happened, you just said I went semi-viral overnight and it was with regards to a hospital appointment that you'd had for your pregnancy and Mm -hmm. your partner being sent out of the room and then you having to deal with a nurse who wasn't at all accommodating or understanding of your blindness. I just want to double check, um, would you like me to say blindness, blind, sight loss? I prefer blind or visually impaired. I always say, well, I never really had any sight to lose. So, you know, like I was born with not very much sight. It's not like behind the sofa, you know. Yeah. (laughs) And that's what I would always advise around disability, actually. And it's one of the things that makes people super anxious is is the words. Mm. And we're all on a journey with language, right? And blind was even a word I struggled with for a very long time. You know, I wouldn't use it about myself, blah, blah, blah. Just ask. Just be like, hi, how would you prefer to just like for me to describe your impairment or... 
what are words you're comfortable with because everyone is comfortable with something different mm. and I would also encourage people to think about and it you know not in this it's obviously relevant in this context but so often people will say oh well what's your condition and then I say oh well I have ocular albinism with horizontal occurring nystagmus <laughs> does that mean anything to you it genuinely sounds a little bit like you're doing a harry potter yeah right thing. i know yeah. like wingardium leviosa or something exactly yeah um and which we don't want to do because we don't want to summon any turfs mm. so um yeah actually finding out what someone's medical conditions will tell you nothing about how you can support them or what they need mm. so when encountering a disabled person just saying hi what what do you need? How can I support you is much mm. more useful than learning some kind of Grey's Anatomy term. So, sorry, I took us off track where I was asking you about vocabulary. And what I wanted to ask you about was, in those replies, lots of people were coming back at you in a what they assumed, I think, was a helpful manner saying, well, why didn't you just ask for your partner slash <laughs> official carer in this context to stay in the room? Why didn't you just push back? Why didn't you tell the nurse what she was doing wrong and then correct the situation? Then you didn't have to be in discomfort. And again and again, this question was sort of asked in, in various ways with different language. And you made the effort to say, I've got to a point where in this particular situation, I was exhausted or we did try that. Or, you know, you were trying to defend your position and as somebody like watching the whole thing spiral out as you do with Twitter reply threads I was like Amy isn't the person who should have to be consistently justified like you'd already done a really detailed thread about training and better awareness and people in the medical profession yet having more information and, and doing the work and the onus not being on the disabled person and then it felt like this twitter thread was again demanding your labor yeah i really respected you for continuing to get back in the ring and i wondered where you get your energy from for it and what it is that's <laughs> driving what's driving you to continue <sighs> to be such a public person i feel like some of the answers might be obvious but i just i'd love to hear it from your perspective because if for that specific example, I think a really good comparison is when somebody shares an experience of being publicly sexually harassed, mm -hmm. right? And if you say I was catcalled or, you know, groped on the train or whatever, there's 27,000 reply guys or people in your life saying, oh, well, I would have, or I'd have kicked them in the balls, or I would have done this and I would have done that. And it's like, actually, would you? Because if you're a woman or a person of marginalized gender, you've probably been in that situation and have experienced that your body goes into defense mode, you freeze, you run away, you know that objecting or voicing your objections uh, can make a situation much more dangerous and violent. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for disabled people. Like that nurse literally had a needle in my arm. Am I going to be like, well, actually, I think you'll find that paragraph 2.3a of the Equality Act states. No. <laughs> mm. And, you know, why didn't you do X or why didn't you do Y? It's also very easy for a sighted person to see. I did not walk into that room expecting to be discriminated against. And it was a blood test. It was for gestational diabetes. They took some bloods and then they made me drink a horrible drink and I would leave. You know, it wasn't a full appointment with my midwife. It was a standard test in a little clinic-y side room. And so we've had to fight the can my partner be in the room so many times. You pick your battles because it's not nice. It's not nice to go into confrontation about that. 
it's something my partner actually finds quite difficult. He's not a very confrontational person. And you just pick your battles. So I thought, oh, if I just blood test, whatever. I'll be sat here for like three, four minutes. And obviously I did not expect to be, you know, harassed and discriminated against. I also did not expect them to shove a medicated drink into my mouth and pour liquid into my mouth because you know what I couldn't see that coming and so it's very easy in hindsight for other people to say this is how I would have reacted or this is what you should have done because you weren't actually there and I just encourage people to reflect on that a little bit Mm. about how you don't know what it is to experience that and And it was interesting on reflection when I was talking about it this morning with my partner. And he just said, oh, the way she spoke to me, it was so awful. It was so awful the way she spoke to me. And, you know, she was so patronizing and I hated it. I hated the way she was talking to me about you as if you were like a naughty child. And because it happens so often to me that people speak to me like that, I hadn't even really registered it until... He said, I was like, yeah, she did speak to you really horrendously. And it's because as a disabled person, if I complained or voiced my rights at every single moment that they were infringed, I wouldn't get more than three steps down my street. (laughs) And I just, I don't have the capacity to always complain and always speak about my rights in person. And so that's why I do it on the internet. Because I can sit there and I can calmly respond and inform and educate and make people take away information in a way that in real life is very practically and emotionally challenging that I can't always do. And people get nasty. I think that's the other thing that it's really easy to say you should have told her and you should have made sure he stayed in there. And, you know, when I've asserted my rights in other situations, you know, I've had security guards called on me. I've had people become violent. Um, I've been, you know, taken out of buildings. I've been really aggressively discriminated against the next time I've tried to use that service. So it's really not as simple as just speak up or just complain, because I know the consequences of those actions are not The solution that people think they are, right? Because for them, they've never experienced being discriminated against because they're blind. (laughs) And they don't know that actually the process of making a complaint is going to be hugely inaccessible. Like, are they going to have Braille forms? Are they going to have large print forms? Of course they're not. Website going to be accessible? Of course it isn't. So it's a huge amount of labor that people don't really ever get a perspective on. And the reason that I found a space and a platform on social media and specifically Twitter is because it was full of other disabled people doing the same thing. There were a group of disabled, to be honest, mostly black women who educated me and taught me and held my hand through the process of finally being open and accepting about my disability. And they literally kind of took me like a baby through this process with the love and validation and comfort that I so desperately needed and the reason I keep doing it online for all the trolls and all the well you should have done this and you know intrusive questions and accusing me of faking my blindness is because every once in a while somebody sends me a message that says you make me feel less alone 
Mm. <laughs> oh, I'm very pregnant and emotional. Um, but oh. that that's why. Because, you know, there is, even if I've reached one young blind person who feels less alone and more recognized in their experiences, then, then it's worth it. It's worth every second. It's worth every troll. In terms of your awakening, your acceptance, your evolution, I suppose, as a person, how is that relationship with your blindness, the public nature of your profile and your sex intersected have those things affected each other has your sense of yourself as a sexual person changed alongside your sense of yourself as a blind person I would say that my relationship between my sexuality and my blindness did change because I didn't used to tell people so my vision and it's something that friends and family kind of struggled with a little bit but my vision hasn't radically changed since birth. Mm -hmm. So I've always had what we call residual vision, meaning that I can see shapes and colors and I can magnify text on a computer screen and read it or on my phone. Um, but my vision varies a lot due to the nature of that very long worded condition I gave you earlier. Mm. That means I do experience periods of almost no vision apart from light and dark. And sometimes on rare occasions, I also experience total vision loss. So, but because my kind of day-to-day -day vision was manageable, I hid it and I didn't tell people until I was really about 26 or 27. And... I definitely didn't speak very openly about it in public at all. I didn't call myself blind. I wouldn't use the word disabled. Like I always say, sometimes people say, try to say something very nice. They're like, well, 17-year-old Amy would be so proud of you. I'm like, she fucking wouldn't. She'd be furious. Oh. Like she would be so embarrassed and so horrified that I'd revealed this part of myself to hundreds of thousands of people on the internet. But because of that, the practicalities around dating and sex were quite challenging because I just did people didn't know and then I would probably do something very awkward and embarrassing like walk into a wall and just be like never mind <laughs> <laughs> nothing to see here <laughs> no, literally nothing to see here <laughs> and so um it, I was only really ever open about it with people that I had sort of semi more serious actual relationships with um rather than just like a shag mm. and to be honest I feel quite weirdly proud of how I like logistically managed the mm, <laughs> like mm. casual dating and sex um with a lot of people without telling them about my visual impairment and obviously now I recognize that was actually very toxic in the end it was harmful for me and I didn't get mm. the support I needed but yeah I had some like wild like blind sex adventures where the other people had <laughs> no idea <laughs> isn't that fascinating so do you think there was a trade-off between because I totally identify with the like oh my god I've gotten away with this and the thrill that you get from the adrenaline of that thing of like just being capable in a situation where you you things are working against you but do you think uh, there was a sort of 
dichotomy happening there where you got that kind of thrill, I got away with it, versus actually the more intimate, potentially real connection you might have had if you'd been more honest with them and with you oh, about yourself. Absolutely. Oh, a hundred percent. And you know, I mean also just the fact that I put myself in probably quite like risky situations because mm. things like I can't read street names. I can't read sure. bus numbers. <laughs> is this a good time to ask you about the fetish club? Yeah, you, the fetish. You, in your email you said no, So like, that oh, is an example of it. That. So I went to a fetish club. I went to a few, but I went with the, some some friends slash sexual partners and they didn't really know the one friend who who I was uh, studying with at the time she she sort of knew because I would always talk about it in very vague terms I say oh I can't see very well and sometimes you know my eyes get tired you know I'd be very vague about it and and I was one of those people that would always like take someone's arm because that genuinely was a way to mean I wouldn't walk into a, a wall or a car but in like a buddy buddy kind of a way <laughs> it was about three o'clock in the morning and obviously, fetish clubs are not the most well-lit of venues. So I couldn't see anything. And I was wearing four five-inch heels, like spiked heels. And I went to the loo and I was it was so dark in there. And I was like, I do not know. I do not know what, how to get out of this toilet. I'm going to have to live here now. <laughs> and this very nice drag queen saw me sort of probably standing there. And she probably thought, oh, the poor thing. She's never been to a fetish club before. She's very overwhelmed. And the reality was, I just did not know where the door was in the room. I heard, like, I was like, well, I can't feel the walls because then people will be like, she's off her trolley or, you know, on some illegal substance, which I expect many people in that club were, but it raises In concerns. many ways, like it would have been the best. You would have actually blended in much better <laughs> if you'd just gone for it. I'd been like feeling the walls for yeah, a door, totally. which is like what I have to do. And I can do more openly now because it's mm -hmm. like, well, I'm blind. People get it. And this lovely drag queen came in and was like, oh, you're all right, love. You're all right. I was like, oh, yeah, I'm just trying to find my way out of this loo and find my friends. And she was like, oh, I'll help you, sweetheart. And I was like, oh, can I just hold onto your arm like this? Because of, of my heels. It wasn't because of my heels. It was because mm -hmm. I was almost totally blind in this fetish club. I, she was lovely. She was like, yeah, yeah, no problem. And like guided me really nicely out of the loo. And was like, oh, where were your friends sitting? Now, this is the usual thing about fetish clubs because they are very clearly designated areas so I could say oh <laughs> the part where men have to crawl and she was like oh that's no problem I'll take you there <laughs> incredible so that's the learning from this story is actually that fetish clubs are in some ways in many ways awful because yeah the darkness but in other ways the designated areas make them much more accessible <laughs> and they love a bit of seating be it human or furniture so that's <laughs> that's a good accessibility feature um, I don't want to put this on you if it wasn't actually what was going on at the time, but I've definitely experienced periods of my life where shame and self-denial have put me in situations where I've had more sex, been more sexually active, but had less pleasure. So what was happening for you in terms of pleasure when you were in that period of your life? So I kind of call that period of my life the wild year. Uh -huh. So in a nutshell, I was one of those gals that had uh the older boyfriend from home who i stayed with through university uh -huh. do not recommend uh everyone said it was a bad idea but i was 18 and i was like screw you we'll I be together it. forever and the rest of our lives yeah no uh and actually i really regret that because i would have had a lot more sex 
if I hadn't been in that relationship. And I was just, because I'm not a dick, I'm like not into cheating, really. Mm-hmm. And that's my perspective on cheating. I just think if you want to have sex with other people, either agree at the beginning or stop being in a monogamous relationship. It's not kind. Um, and so I didn't really have much of that kind of wild unisex because I was in this long-term relationship truly amy i think a lot of people do not have uh, quotes wild unisex (laughs) i think they have a lot of awkward slightly sticky situations you haven't missed out too much yeah there was one lecturer though that i definitely could have had sex with (laughs) and it's really bad and it did haunt me slightly he was 10 years older than me as well which at the time was like very scandalous i also increasingly reflect on how I understand people's reactions that a 28-year-old man had an 18-year-old girlfriend now, a little bit more, kind of get that more now. But he was genuinely quite a nice bloke. And I think I emotionally outgrew him, which is why it had worked when I was 18. And then I had a very difficult part of my life where coming out of that first relationship, I entered into a short-term relationship that turned extremely... Uh, controlling and abusive and violent and concluded in a series of protracted um, sexual assaults and I managed to get out of that situation but it kind of launched me and apparently this is quite common that people who have been in abusive situations I kind of wanted to almost prove to myself that sex could be powerful and enjoyable again. So then for a year, I just had a lot of sex. And actually, 99% of it was great. And because I just embraced it as this is sex, and I'm just having sex because I would like to have some sex, and I want to have some different experiences and go on dates and meet people and do interesting things because I was living in London and I was like sure I'm gonna go and do all the cliche dates that you do in London right we'll do the like natural history museum late and the walk to Greenwich Park date and I did all those and I actually did really enjoy it and I got to explore my sexuality as well around you know kink and having relationships with people of other genders and I reflect on it as a very joyful and positive time although I now recognize that I was processing some like hella trauma as well Mm. and I've said this before so he won't mind me saying this but my other half um I always say well he turned up a bit early and I was slightly annoyed because I could have gone on like that probably for another six months to a year and been very happy (laughs) and then this man turned up and I was like damn it falling in love with him guess that's that then (laughs) oh I feel nice I feel very, very good indeed. Since I feel lovely, would you like to come and play with me? Okay. I was about to ask you, because we talked about your wild year of sexual fun and experimentation. And obviously, you only have your own experience to go by, as uh, do any of us. Have you heard or have you experienced, like, the sensory intensity of sex to be heightened because of, yeah, having less sight? Like you say, it's very difficult for me to judge because I don't know what it's like (laughs) to have sex with sight or with more sight than I have. When one of your main inputs into the world is tactile, I feel with my hands and my feet, and there's also something called proprioception, Mm. which is how your body feels in, in space. 
as in the physical space around you, not like a nebula. Floating up to the moon. Yeah, although I suppose an orgasm can feel like that sometimes. (laughs) I believe that my tactile experience of sex is probably more profound. Mm. And that's what makes me laugh so much about all the people saying, well, if you're blind, how did you get pregnant? And I just, beyond it being an intrusive and unpleasant comment, I just think how terrible their sex lives must be. Right. Like, if you've never done it with the lights off, or they really need some biology lessons in how you conceive, because if you are like, I know you can like fuck with your eyeballs, but don't literally fuck with your eyeballs. You're not going to have a baby that way. (laughs) Does it make you sad, the infantilization of blind people? What a stupid question. Like, of course, it must make you sad. Like, I just realised reading all the media around your work and actually with reference to what you were saying earlier about the experience with the nurse um, that you tweeted about last night that there's some there's some crossover isn't there between people Mm -hmm. infantilizing disabled people in public treating them as if yeah they are silly children and who who must always need to be helped even if that help is absolutely not invited and a lack of imaginative scope when it comes to those people being sexually active it's something i talk about a lot when i also talk about um, my experiences of sexual violence which is a big part of my campaigning where there is this tension and this challenge between disabled women and people of marginalized genders being significantly less likely to be believed when they experience sexual violence because there is a perception that we don't understand our sexuality we won't have experienced anything sexual we do not have the capacity for sex physically, that we are childlike in that way, and that this simultaneously makes us more vulnerable to perpetrators because they are relying on the fact that we're not going to be believed for those reasons. And quite often in the more unpleasant and harassing interactions I have, there's a very evident focus on that. I get asked if I, you know, have had sex, if I know what an orgasm is like do I know what a penis looks like one man I shouldn't shouldn't laugh but sometimes it's so dark you have to Mm. he just said have you ever known the touch of a man and Mm. I was like no thank you Mr Darcy not your touch gonna say Victorian harasser yeah what a retro throwback and I have friends who are wheelchair users who you know, not necessarily in violent or harassing incidents. You know, they'll have little old ladies come up to them in the supermarket in the middle of Tesco's and go, oh, can you have sex? Wow. And that's actually quite a normal question for disabled people to get in public from total strangers, not even like, hello, my name's Doris and I'm a member of, you know, Cheshire WI. Mm. Like, we're doing a survey. (laughs) It's, It's just straight out what you have to tell me about your bodily function in public in this space right now sure and is that part and parcel of disabled people in order to be able to advocate for themselves having to be quite clear around their needs so having to say look i need this because otherwise i'm not gonna be able to have sex and then that kind of seems like an open door as a result i don't know like a fascination on behalf of 
I think it's fascination. I think it's like wildly intrusive ableism. And I think culture, society, the media has actively told non-disabled people that they have permission to ask these questions. Mm. So, for example, with the legacy of an austerity government and an ongoing conservative government that had billboards and newspapers telling people to report on their disabled neighbours, you know, telling them to call up the Department for Work and Pensions if they saw their wheelchair using neighbour getting in and out of a car or going to a gym. And it's also part of that intrusive questioning is a lot about the entitlement people feel to assess your right to access services. If you do not have a visible disability, so for example, if you have Crohn's or colitis and you have the requirement urgently of, of accessible toilets because you need to change a colostomy bag, or you have a bowel condition that just means you need to get in a toilet quickly and you cannot queue in a public toilet, you know, you will be absolutely grilled on exiting because you do not look disabled. Mm. And it happens to me, like I come out of an accessible toilet, which I need to use because trying to squeeze a golden retriever in a standard cubicle is not an enjoyable exercise. And they will, I, I can tell they've looked at me in the face and the upper half of my body and they will start the, you do know that's a disabled toilet. And then there's the golden retriever in the guide dog harness. And they go, oh, 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 right, right, right. As if they're going, oh, I've, I've checked you and you pass my test. Mm. Because today I've decided I'm the disabled toilet police in Tesco's or Marks and Spencer's or wherever it is. <laughs> the self-appointed police of disabled and public toilets. But that infantilizing question, I think, is also really important because... It denies disabled people the opportunity for really important stuff like sex education. So in a lot of what are called special educational schools, although that's not a term I like because my needs aren't special, they're just different. There's usually a dearth of any kind of sexual education for people with learning disabilities, any kind of disability specific school, the provision around even what your body mechanically does isn't there. Never mind things like understanding consent. And then this is a really dark and fuzzy area because then a lot of disabled people have to rely on others to, to do personal care tasks, mm. to assist them to the toilet, to, to help get washed, to get dressed. And people are not equipped to be able to know or to be able to advocate or have the power to advocate, this person has touched me inappropriately or mm. I do not feel comfortable with this activity. Or something that happens a lot as well is disabled people will quite naturally seek self-pleasure like anyone will mm -hmm. right but if you're in an institutional setting you get punished for that you get that denied mm. you get told it's inappropriate um it's put on a chart about you you know i've read care plans where it's like jeffrey will attempt to self-stimulate and this is how you need to manage it and i'm thinking like jeffrey's like 19 and has his own bedroom like why is that a problem sure and are you doing that with any other young man? So that can be really damaging. And people just don't get the opportunity to learn about or explore their own sexuality at all if they have certain institutionalised or very care provision based childhoods and adolescences. And I feel like that sex education would be so valuable on both sides. So for carer and yeah. the person who's being cared for. Because in that way, a conversation is facilitated or even questions are answered that don't need to be asked between them. I mean, obviously, always have that ongoing dialogue. But for example, with Jeffrey, our imagined Jeffrey, the person caring for him might not be 
averse to him masturbating might not be like you should never masturbate but it might be difficult for them to broach the conversation of like maybe we could have a code word where I don't come in you know and instead of that being an easy chat to have because yeah we acknowledge the need for self-pleasure as something healthy and important it's like oh we can't talk about it at all so therefore Jeffrey has to be disciplined in some sense or made to feel disgusting with all of this darkness all of this difficult stuff that you're having to advocate for and address and raise awareness around how do you find trust in a sexual partner how do you how do you allow yourself to to be free and to be intimate and to to leave that stuff at the door almost and that's the question i would ask anybody who had experienced sexual trauma and or anybody who just had a really intense job both of which are things you've experienced I think it took me a while to be intimate again Mm. after the wild year because sex was fine in the way that it was just very enjoyable Mm -hmm. or hilarious or awkward sex but like that true trustful intimacy where you you give of yourself Mm -hmm. right did take time and luckily I met a very loving partner who understood that and was very ready to understand that need to take time we kind of got about maybe five or six dates in and I was like right I really like him and I'm just gonna have to tell him things and I'm just gonna have to have that conversation because I would like to have sex with him but So I kind of geared myself up and I invited him out. And by the time he'd arrived, I'd had three margaritas. <laughs> and I was like, so I need to tell you all this stuff. I'd like to have sex with you, but I have a lot of intimacy issues and trauma. And I just need you to be really understanding. And just kind of like word vomited it at him. And luckily he is lovely and perfect and wonderful. And um, like everybody likes him. <laughs> Uh, he was able to hear that and recognize it and be kind and gentle and always has been but for sure you know there are periods in our relationship over the last well nearly a decade where the persistent violence or trauma that I've experienced in my daily life just means that intimacy isn't possible Mm -hmm. right because you know when you are repeatedly sexually assaulted or treated violently or discriminated against with people, you know, interacting with your body. It makes sexual intimacy a really big hill to climb, even though the person that you love hasn't done those things. Just your skin crawls and that's one of the most painful things about it actually for me is that for someone who gets so much joy and pleasure from tactile interactions and information from interactions. Having my hair brushed or a bath are some of the most joyful sensory things. Mm. Like I genuinely think, I think I have achieved orgasm just by having my hair brushed Mm. because it's like a sensory thing I enjoy so much. But when somebody violates your boundaries and your consent and grabs you or hurts you or assaults you, it takes away that tactile joy for me. And that's very hard. Mm. 
and then so I have to put a lot of work in and my partner also puts work into making interaction and touch feel like positive and safe again that is really difficult and that's one of the really painful things that I try to explain to people I'm like look it's not just that someone's grabbed me to take me across a road and that was frightening but they took away my sensory input being joyful and they took away that feeling of being touched as being something I wanted and I invited and I could control and actually how for blind people that sense of touch and those tactile interactions they are so important to us Mm. so when they're violated and when they're non-consensual it's so painful emotionally and so that can be very difficult but they're also so joyful the intimacy of somebody even just holding my hand in a certain way or the experience of you know cuddling my guide dog and feeling her fur on my legs you know these are all things that I probably get a lot more out of than sighted people and that's why sex can be hugely sensorily overwhelming because I'm like oh so many touching and feeling sensations Mm. and I also think that's why I like orgasms get I do think blind people probably have great orgasms <laughs> I can't speak for all blind people <laughs> that's such a good let's speak I, I hope I hope that that is a generalization that is true that would be fantastic and you want me to with my elbow okay that leads us so beautifully into my final question which is what does an orgasm feel like if you just want to say sensory overload, that's also fine. If you want to be more specific, please. I just free. think it's it's so hard to say what an orgasm feels like because there are so many different types of orgasm. Mm-hmm. For me especially, there is the crashing waves and rippling through your body and this warmth and sensory almost blackout of a huge real kind of earth shaker and then there's that like bubbly little joyful tickly tingle of like one on the go and (laughs) you know the difference it feels like whether it's yourself or a partner or a vibrator like for me there is no one feeling because each is so deliciously intimate and sensory and different in its own way and that's why for me you know variety really is the spice of life with orgasms and I I promised I I promised my other half I would tell this story because he really likes this story so on our first date um I did mention that I to him because I really liked him I mentioned oh you know I I have this eye condition and it's not a big deal or caveated all of that and then I said oh but one thing that can happen is um when I orgasm, I can lose my vision. I can go totally blind if I orgasm. Mm-hmm. And he just said, well, that's something to aim for. <laughs> <laughs> what a great response. Reader, he achieved it. Don't worry. Yeah. <laughs>